0: Hello, greetings, thank you for the gift of joining us in considering spiritual things together with us from what God has made known in the pages of scripture. I'm Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, we're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Our conversation today comes from Luke, the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that the disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So when Jesus says this, in chapter 17 and verse 11, he is on his way to Jerusalem. He hasn't arrived yet. In chapter 19 and verse 28, he will arrive in Jerusalem. And he'll be in Jericho in Luke 18 and verse 35. So he's somewhere here between uh, the border between Samaria and Galilee and Jericho. He's going down the road. And the important thing for us to realize is that this instruction that he's giving is all tinged with the recognition of what's going to happen, that Jesus is preparing his disciples not only for what will happen to him, but for life and faithfulness when he's no longer physically present with him uh, after his resurrection and ascension. So Jesus' parable, the persistent widow, is probably catalyzed very specifically by the conversation regarding the signs around the coming of the kingdom and the vindication of the Son of Man that concluded chapter 17, uh, verse 20 through 37. Verse 20 and 21, the Pharisees had asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, and Jesus told him that it would not come with signs to be uh, perceived, that in fact it's in the midst of them uh, in Jesus and what he is accomplishing. And then he told the disciples uh, that the day would come when they would want to see what he calls one of the days of the Son of Man but they would not see it. What is one of the days of the Son of Man? Well, he's going to continue on, and he's saying that these things would be suffered, and he would have to be rejected by this generation. Uh, he talks about it in terms of the day of Noah, and the day of Lot, uh, that it would be in the day of the Son of Man, that things would be going on as normal, and then it would all come to an end. Um, they need to flee quickly, not turn back. Uh, that those seeking to preserve his life will lose, and those who lose their life would keep it. Uh, two would, you know, it would be arbitrary. One would be taken, one would be left in a bed or in a field uh, or grinding, women grinding together uh, in this particular example. And at the end of it, uh, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said, Where the corpse is, the vultures would gather there. All of these things are very parallel to what is seen in Matthew 24 and uh, other passages talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, so the day of the Son of Man here is about the apocalyptic things that are about to happen and what would have to happen in between um, what would happen to Jesus and the, the day where he would be vindicated as the Son of Man. And so this encouragement here is given about uh, continuing to pray. And it's a very interesting departure from convention that Luke will begin narrating the the story uh, by telling us what Jesus' purpose is that the disciples should pray and not grow weary or faint and the fact that he says uh, and then he then told and he told them you know there's a there's a progression for what came beforehand Um, and the word here being used for not lose heart is a which is utterly spiritless wearied out or exhausted and there'll be more contextual explanation of why this is at the end of the parable and so we'll hold off until then so now we get the parable and we're given two characters. He's a, there's a judge who doesn't fear God or, and doesn't respect man. And there's a widow. And it's a very hyperbolic contrast. The judge, who doesn't fear God or respect people, has a lot of power but has no restraint. He has no reverence for custom or anything else. He's just going to do whatever uh, he wants to do. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um widows in the ancient world were among the most marginalized and powerless of people because it had no male figure who would advocate for them before magistrates of the court and therefore they didn't have a lot of rights that could really be respected. And we're told this widow wants justice against her adversary. We're not told what the specific injury or issue was. It's not really relevant to the story. It would probably just be a distraction. And she just keeps bothering him. She kept coming, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And so he refuses for a while, because that seems to be his thing. And then he reasons to himself. And the reasoning is, is rather funny. Uh, and the reasoning is, well, I don't honor God or or, or uh, revere God or honor man. Uh, would anybody actually tell themselves that in their head? Probably not. It, but we're, we're just playing with it here in the story. The idea is that... Um, Is given us he has no real reason to give this woman any justice based upon his perspective but he's going to do it just because she's so annoying it's like i'm going to give her what she wants so she shuts up and leaves me alone i will give her justice against her adversary just to get her out of my face and uh then jesus tells us in verse 6 hear what the unrighteous judge says and he wants them thus to sort the lesson out for themselves. Why did the widow get justice? The widow got justice because she was consistent and she was insistent. If she had just tried once or just a few times and gave up, she would not have received justice. You know, the judge is is giving her the justice against her adversary because uh, she was so annoying. And uh, so Jesus then asks a rhetorical question for effect, and then he answers it. Well, God, you know, uh, not. Uh, give justice to his elect who crowd him and but day and night will he delay long over them i tell you he will give justice to them speedily so avenging the elect the idea there is that the saints the god's holy ones have been persecuted and this would be consistent with the experiences that the christians would have in acts and revelation uh, patient or long suffering or delay long and so the question here is is god strengthening christians to endure what they must endure by saying he would delay long over them, or is God being patient towards some of them to repent in 2 Peter 3 9? Maybe some of both going on is is part of the question. And of course, then we get to uh, speedily. What does that mean? Uh, Is speedily, is it going to happen soon? Or is speedily mean when it's going to happen, it's going to happen suddenly? And either is possible, really, depending on your interpretive framework. What's going on here is the same kind of thing as we see in Luke 11, 11-13, where he says, you know, if some, if your son asks you for a, you know, an egg, will you give him a snake? No. And if you, people who are are evil, are you know, give good things to your children, will not God, who is you know, all loving, do good things for His children when they ask Him? The same thing here. Jesus is using an example of a person who is immoral and unjust, but who Did the the right thing in the circumstance to heighten an expectation that if somebody who is unjust, who doesn't care at all about God or man, is willing to give this woman justice, then surely God, who is more than just, he will certainly dispense justice. And that's what Jesus is trying to do to strengthen the disciples to persist in prayer, to realize that you have to, you know, it, it may not come immediately, it may not come as quickly as you think it should, but you need to keep praying, and God will hear you. And Jesus ends his discussion of the parable with a very haunting question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And this is probably why Luke explained the parable in advance, so that the question is just left hanging. And he will go on and tell other parables and, and, and other stories. Uh, and allows Jesus' question to really maintain its great force and to be left ringing in the ears of the disciples and all who hear it. Will people endure despite persecutions and temptations, or will they fall away? So what are we going to do here with this parable? It's very important for us to start with a very contextual application. Uh, There's an immediate and long-term application of this regarding prayers specifically about vengeance and justice. It's very easy for us to see this, uh, take it out of the specific illustration being used, and just generalize it. And we're going to generalize it, don't worry. But before then, we really should respect what Jesus has to say in the way he has to say it. Uh, we've said that the media context in, in view with Matthew 24, Mark 13 parallels is there's going to be this upcoming day of the Son of Man that will be manifest in the year 70. And that Jesus knew the disciples were going to go through persecution and they were going to desire justice. And so this parable was to teach and reinforce the power of constantly praying for that justice for the day of the Son of Man to come. There will be a lot of times where that day might feel nearer than not. Uh, If you're a Jewish Christian, uh, maybe you're thinking the year 40 and 41 when Caligula wants to put a statue into the temple and the Jews are about ready to revolt. Maybe it's 60 to 62 where you have a change in Roman procurators and they take the opportunity to kill James the Just. Uh, But it would eventually, it would not come. There would be many who would pretend to be the Messiah and would claim the liberation to come, and yet it had not. But when the events did happen from 68 to 70, they came quickly. In fact, when Titus began the final siege, uh, Jerusalem had been filled with visitors and they had no chance to escape. And at that point, vengeance was taken because of the rejection of Jesus, the son of man, and for the persecution of those who would follow him. And so we said that you can look at speedily in, in two senses and both could be appropriate. In one sense, we can say 40 years is really not that long. especially when you compare it to, for instance, the fact that John will see Revelation and the judgment on Rome will take 115 to 500 years uh, to take place, or the fact that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said these things and we're still waiting for the ultimate uh, day of the Son of Man. But in the midst of that 40-year period, going through waves of persecution and distress, and without knowing when it would end, we could see why Christians would grow weary of praying for justice. Now, if the Hebrews letter is indeed written in, this year, in the 60s uh, to a Jewish Christian community, then we can see very presciently how Jesus has seen these things. Because many Jewish Christians were very tempted to give up and return to the old ways. Would he find faith on the earth? The long-term context, which is also apparent as, as you continue in Matthew 24-25, to 25, would be, and in Revelation, uh, the day of the Son of Man against Rome. And the ultimate day of the Son of Man, the day of judgment and resurrection. For judgment against Rome, we see a lot in Revelation, including a scene in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where the martyrs want to know how long it will be before their blood is avenged. And Christians would endure 250 years of waves of harassment and persecution and pressure from the Romans and they would need to hear this message to not give up in their prayers for justice that God would and God did avenge their blood and to this day we await the return of the Lord Jesus to defeat the final enemy death and for justice and righteousness to be fully accomplished on the day of judgment and that is why uh, we are to cry out maranatha our lord come in first corinthians 16 and verse 22. And so we do well to remember that this parable is contextually applied to Christians crying out to God continually that justice would be accomplished on the earth, that the righteous would be avenged, and their adversaries would be judged. And of course, what's interesting about this is that of all the things in the faith, this is what Christians find really embarrassing. How many Christians are praying for the Lord to return at all, let alone that justice should be done in the day of judgment? Maybe our difficulty is that we haven't experienced enough difficulty or suffering. We have not endured persecution as they have, and we can't sympathize with their plight. In fact, some even get haughty in their comfort and their complacency. They look down with scorn upon Christians for praying that God would judge and condemn their enemies. I mean, after all, shouldn't they love their enemies and desire their salvation in Luke 6, 1 Timothy 2, and 2 Peter 3, and verse 9? But in this we have the Lord Jesus himself as an example. I mean, he is God in the flesh. He is love. He died that all could be saved. But he pronounces in Matthew 23 and 24, doom on the Pharisees inscribed and, and condemned Jerusalem in its hardness of heart and rebelliousness. And we have to remember that, yes, Jesus in his life death uh, is very nonviolent and he maintains a nonviolent posture in his life. But it's not just be- for nonviolence for the sake of nonviolence. It's because he's entrusting himself to God who judges justly. In First Peter 2, 18 through 25, uh, in fact Jesus very much expects that he will be vindicated and he will get glory over those who condemned him manifest in this judgment in the year 70 which he himself has declared interestingly in Romans chapter 12 uh, a relevant passage here beginning in verse 19 Jesus I mean Paul says uh, beloved never avenge yourselves and you think it'd be a condemnation of vengeance but it is not he says but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, "Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. So there's not an expectation that people are just gonna do bad things to us and that we just let them get away with it. Uh, that there's no vengeance to be had. The issue is not, should vengeance be had upon those who act against us unjustly. The, the, the issue is who is right and proper to give that vengeance? And, and the issue is that it's not for us. We should be giving it over to God let God in his wrath deal with things righteously and justly because if we don't pray for the Lord to return and for his justice to be accomplished on the earth we're not truly seeking God's reign and God's righteousness we need to love our fellow man and yet make wish that iniquity and injustice should be made right and if we're not bothered by injustice or iniquity in this world is it because we've been grown weary of it that we were desensitized to it or God forbid are we complicit when the Son of Man returns, will he find us praying for his justice to be accomplished and for him to return? Or are we, he's going to find us hardened in our cynicism, worn down by weariness, or even worse, complicit with the very powers and principalities who oppress and who sent him to the cross. So that's a very specific application and something we need to keep in mind. And it's very important for us always to keep that up on the pedestal it belongs. That's the primary purpose of what Jesus has to say. But we can also extend the principle of what Jesus has to say here about praying regarding justice and vengeance uh, to other aspects of our lives and faith, to our thoughts and practices. Because the persistent widow is teaching us the power of perseverance. Now in our prayer lives, it's very easy for us to grow scared and skittish. That we ask God for something once. We might get disappointed and then we think we shouldn't keep asking for it. Now, if, if our asking is for a million dollars or for a new car, well, maybe we're, we're asking to spend on our passions and not to glorify him, uh, and we shouldn't pray for those things that are just to seek to our material benefit uh, without glorifying God in James 4, 1-4. But we need to pray persistently for what we desire in faith and must not grow weary just because it's not perfectly realized on our timetable. God wants us to cast our anxieties upon him in 1 Peter 5.7. He wants us to pray continually in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. He knows what we need before we ask. We can see in the Psalms the boldness that can be used in praying to God if we had the faith to do that. Uh, Sometimes what we pray for doesn't happen because it's not in our best interest. Maybe it's a process that takes time. Maybe it's a matter of timing. Maybe it's something else beyond our understanding. And we shouldn't look at prayer as a way of trying to extort or manipulate God. That, that's not how this works. God is sovereign. God is supreme. And we are making our request known to him. Thankfully, that he even cares enough to let us ask, uh, which is certainly something we shouldn't take for granted. And, and to understand that so much of why we pray is for our own benefit uh, and beyond anything that he will give. Without denying the power of prayer, uh, the power of righteous man avails much, as James tells us. Uh, but we can know that the more consistently, continually, persistently we pray about that which would glorify God, the more we can grow in faith. Uh, If we give up on such things in our prayer, then we're not growing in faith, and we should have no expectations they're going to happen. And this can be about justice. It can be about personal growth. It can be about evangelism. It can be on behalf of others and many other things. And it's not even just in terms of our prayer life. It can be about practices, overcoming temptations of sin. If we try to avoid a sin, we and accidentally or, or we we're tempted to do this and we do this and we don't give up right no we have to keep trying we have to keep persistently we're trying to turn back to the to the purposes of god uh also in doing righteousness you know we might stumble and and, and not do the right thing in one circumstance but it gives us hopefully strength to to uh, pray rest for forgiveness and to seek to do the right thing the next time uh, in terms of proclaiming the gospel, things of that nature, in all of these things, it's insufficient just to do them once, then get disappointed and give up. In all these things, we need to keep trying, keep working, despite our failings, despite the rejections. That if we persevere in our practice, we have opportunities to grow, and, and God can be glorified. If we don't persevere in our practices, are we manifesting faith for the Son of Man to find when He returns? And we keep going back to that, not just because Jesus goes back to that, but because that's that haunting question that is designed to haunt us all. When he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Now, he's definitely going to find people who profess to have faith, but is he actually going to find trust in his people? Will the people of God remain faithful to God in his covenant promises, to be persistent in prayer, to yearn for justice, to be distressed at the sin all around them, and wanting the Lord to return so God can get all the glory? Or is the Son of Man going to find his people compromised, hardened in cynicism and despair, having capitulated to the powers and principalities, maybe even complicit with them, and certainly not praying for his return or the institution of justice, maybe because they're afraid that they would be on the wrong end of that demonstration of justice now we need to be clear jesus was not asking because he thought that there would be no remnant god always leaves for himself a remnant the question is always will we be participating in that remnant or not and so that's what we all need to consider ourselves in our prayers and our conduct are we manifesting faith in jesus the son of man Do we trust that in God and Christ he's going to return one day to judge the living and the dead, to uphold justice and righteousness on the earth? Do we persist in prayer that we might be vindicated and avenged for all that we have suffered? Will the Son of Man find us faithful when he returns? Or will he find us wishing he hadn't? That's why it's important for all of us to put our trust in God and Christ, to persist in prayer and in faith that we may obtain eternal life in him. We're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that this has benefited you. If it has, please share it uh, with friends and family and also uh, like our podcast. and Follow our podcast wherever you found it. Uh, If we can be of any service, uh, please uh, let us know through our uh, internet channels, especially our website or social media. And uh, as we conclude, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, that you have given us so many blessings, the blessings of life, the blessings of this creation, the blessing of your Son, the blessing of the Spirit and the Word for association with uh, fellow Christians, for uh, health and prosperity and so many other things. We pray, Father, that uh, we would be strengthened to be persistent in our prayers. We pray, Father, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would bring your justice, that you would uh, uh, do what is right and and holy in your sight and in the day of judgment, that uh, wrongs will be avenged, and that injustice will uh, suffer the due penalty that it has begotten for itself. We pray, Father, that your Son would return and return quickly, that uh, all things may be consummated in you and your purposes be fully manifest, and that we can share with you in the resurrection of life. And we pray that we would be able to maintain a a strong focus to continue to persist in our prayers, in in our faith, in our and our diligence to serve and glorify you in all things, and that we may be found faithful uh, through life to death and at the return of your Son. And it's his name that we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you until we can talk again. Have a great day.